Hello and welcome to this special edition of Hooray for Hollywood with Tom Johnson. I'm John Guzan and I'm going to be a special host today. We're going to almost like be interviewing Tom who attended our Turner Classic or who attended the Turner Classic Movies Festival um, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, Tom, are you there and how was your time at TCM? It was the ninth annual festival and they were very proud of that and and they had, uh, according to um, uh, Ben Mankiewicz, who is sort of the de facto uh-huh. host of the conference now that Robert Osborne has passed away, he, right. he was very proud of the fact that they have a, uh, they had about 140 events and films in total, which is a new record for the festival. So, uh, you know, they really, uh, they, they do aim to please. They really, really uh, kind of roll out the red carpet literally to for fans that come from, you know, really all over the world, mostly the U.S., but there are some foreign uh, nationals that come that love old, uh, old movies, and, you know, it was, uh, it was a good time. Hey, well, so was this the first uh, TCM festival that didn't have Robert Osborne in attendance? You know, that's a really good question. I can't remember. I, you know, it, I think it's the second. Uh, uh, he had made a kind of a limited appearance about three, two, three years ago, three years ago, and he was kind of sick, and he, he came, and it was, uh, you know, so he, he uh, no, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't here last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, although last year they said he might show up at some point, they were hoping. Right. Uh, you know, but, but he just couldn't make it, and then he passed away. So this year it was pretty much uh, Ben Mankiewicz and Ileana Douglas and, uh, you know, uh, the uh, noir guy and, and, you know, kind of the, the people that you see on the uh, on the network screenings that were Sure. Here. Hey, um, opening night was probably pretty good, and you also went to that poolside movie, Them, um, hosted by Dennis Miller and Ileana Douglas. Um, that must have been pretty fun. Was Dennis yeah, Miller as Rye? Yeah, it was, John. It's, it's always a lot of fun. I always try and do that. They... Uh, they they have like two or three movies that they do poolside at night, in addition to all the screenings that they have at the various participating theaters, which are all walkable. Most of, a lot of them are at the Grauman's Chinese Theater, which is now the Grauman's IMAX and, and Grauman's like one two three four, and uh, so it's all walkable. But the uh, the poolside stuff is really fun, and they're usually campy movies that they play there, which is, they can be kind of raucous and a lot of fun, and the opening night uh, party movie, I mean, the opening night party is in Club TCM, and, you know, there's a lot of people reconnecting, a lot of people, it's almost like a high school reunion for Uh people, because some of these people have come all nine years, and they've made friends, and so they all, you know, meet at the opening night party and, you know, hang out and you know, have drinks and, and really good hors d'oeuvres, i got to say. They, they uh, have hey, nice hors d'oeuvres there. That's right. And, yeah, and this, the pool party, this, uh, the first pool party was Them, that 1950s uh, insect movie, right. you know, that was gigantic you know, kind insects. of works off the Cold War paranoia of right. uh, nuclear holocaust, and, you know, these ants are the size of, you know, two-story buildings, right. and, uh, and James Arness is in it, and uh, and uh, James Whitmore, and, and it's just great. They're out in the godforsaken desert somewhere trying to fight them. Right. And uh, the two, and, and yeah, you go down there, and then at the pool, they give you little ant antennae that you could wear in your head. So there, there's always some weird thing like that at these pool parties. Right. And, uh, and they also gave you little candy suckers, you know, the lickable suckers that had ants yeah, embedded in them, like real ants, which right. I, 
you know, I took a few of them and then tried to give them away to people, and they were saying, no, no way am I going to lick that thing. You can see the ants in there. And I said, well, it's protein. I don't know what they're thinking, but, you know. Uh, and uh, Dennis Miller was the host. Uh, Ileana Douglas was with him, and uh, he, he came down from Santa Barbara. Uh, I had interviewed him up there years and years ago, and um, so it was just kind of a nice drive down for him. And although, no, actually, he said he flew in. I'm sorry, I'm wrong about that. But he um, he called it, well, Ileana Douglas called uh, the the festival Coach Coachella for shut-ins, which was sort of funny. <laughs> I mean, I love that. She was uh, she got it off to kind of a, a snarky, funny, you know, start. And, um, you know, and, and Miller came in, and he was telling the story. Is an infl- he was in the in-flight. He was watching. Uh, he was uh, watching a, a movie, an old movie on, uh, you know, in the in-flight movie. It was Sabrina, I think, with Audrey Hepburn. Uh-huh. He said, and he said to the audience, "I was hoping Audrey would come back from the grave and vanquish the Kardashians." Oh you know, yeah, was, uh, you know, he's kind of funny. And he said, uh, Ileana asked him, like, "Well, you know, did this movie scare when you scare you when you saw it back? You know, when you were a kid? Because it's one of these like matinee movies. I think we all saw." And he said, as a kid, you're not worried about nuclear war. You're worried about big ants. He, right. said, he said, yeah, it scared the hell out of him. So, <laughs> you know, but he, he, he couldn't say enough about TCM. He just loves the network and, uh, and the programming. He said, uh, watching TCM, which he does all the time. And say, in fact, he says he keep, Miller says he keeps it on almost like a nightlight. Yeah. Like sometimes it's going all day. Right. And, and, you know, it's like this, you know, kind of, he said it's like a, being wrapped in a duvet on the couch you know he just has the you know it's this wonderful sort of sense of security he has with you know these movies going on all day in the house and and you know when his kids watching them and you know he's trying to bring up his kids he said as uh tcm fans and you know he says it's just great he loves it so yeah that's uh, that you know that's interesting you know it's always good to see you know some folks but you know um when they have their guest programmers, I think, you know, it's that same kind of feeling. It's, uh, yeah. you know, a way to yeah. connect to at least new audiences, although Dennis Miller's definitely not young or hip anymore. But uh, right. he's definitely still, um, you know, it's always good to have other people kind of touting um, the brand, I guess, or the idea of classic films and what that really means um, compared to these these modern-day blockbusters. I'm um, kind of speaking on that same thing, um, a modern-day blockbuster and, and Disney he also attended uh, the Mickey Mouse in Hollywood discussion. Mickey's going to be ninety this year. Um, yeah. You know how was how, you know? Did you have young old fans? Because we know Mickey is kind of trans generational. Yeah, he is, and thank God for Disneyland because I mean, people all over the world love Mickey, and you you know you would think that Mickey Mouse. I mean, he's kind of cornball, really. Yeah. I mean, he's not. You know, he's this <laughs> icon from as you said ninety years ago. He turns ninety this year. And so you'd think, well, he's not, you know, the hippest mouse on earth. But I mean, look at his shoes. Pardon? I said, just look at his shoes. Oh, exactly. He has and shoes. Listen right? to his voice, like, hey, Minnie. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of geeky. But I'm telling you, John. I mean, there were old, there were people almost as old as Mickey himself there, and then there were a lot of young people. There were even one of two of the few kids I saw at the festival were were there right. for that. They just love Mickey and. Um, J.B. Kaufman was the host, and uh, uh, and he's a Mickey Mouse self-professed fanatic. He's a, uh, a an author of repute. He's kind of like the uh, scribe, 
the historian of, of all things Mickey Mouse. And he what he did was he just, you know, he, he just told a little bit about Disney that, you know, uh, he, all his life Disney was a movie fan. He was born in Chicago in 1901 and then arrived in Hollywood in 1923. And that, you know, Mickey was his brainchild and the brand. And, uh, and then he went and basically, and this was in the club TCM part of the, you know, in the Roosevelt, it's this dedicated kind of room to, to TCM stuff. And he he just screened all these sort of rare, funny uh, Mickey Mouse cartoons that had a Hollywood sort of background. Like a lot of them were Mickey and maybe Pluto and, uh, you know, Porky Pig or whatever, playing polo against Hollywood celebrities like Groucho Marx. You could probably find a lot of this stuff on YouTube you know, if you really search hard, but the, it was kind of fun seeing it on a big screen in Club TCM with with Kaufman giving his, uh, you know, his uh, notes on, you know, when these things were made and why they were made and all that kind of stuff. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, there was also uh, Cicely Tyson in Sounder, and you had kind of mentioned before we got on the air that she was definitely dressed up uh, and had some, yeah. had, had a nice costume on. Why don't you let everybody in on that part? Yeah, you know, she, Cicely got um, her hands and feet, uh, in, you know, kind of memorialized in cement. She was the uh, the person this year that 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 got that, uh, right. you know, honor in, in, in the forecourt of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Right. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was on hand when Christopher Plummer got the same treatment. I think I wrote about it for, for you, yeah. John, in one of my stories. but. Yeah, Cicely, uh, Cicely did that, and, 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 you know, she was she's like 92 right. or 93, and she looks just incredible. I mean, she had this weird sort of white kind of interesting, I don't know, you know, it was like a white uh, dress or sort of knitted thing. It was really hip, and then she had this sort of Louise Brooks bowl-cut gray hair that went sort of from gray to white, but it was, she was so freaking hip. There was a person from Vogue right next to me that was saying, like, oh, my God, she couldn't believe it. She was like, this is so classically cool. I mean, who would have thought a 92-year-old would be this incredibly hip in how they looked? Right. And, and people were just blown away. And and then I went to Sounder and, and right after that, and she came in, you know, into one of the big theaters and, you know, of course, got a standing ovation. And she was so funny. I mean, she was just great and smart and, and as with it, as, you know, smart as a whip, as with it. Uh, it was just really great. She told all about, you know, the movie, which I remember, you know, as a kid, we all went to see it from my school because right. it was, you know, it preached tolerance and, you know, it's about, uh, about a black family in the Depression era South headed, you know, uh, Cicely Tyson's the mom and, and uh, Paul Winfield played the uh, dad, and they're, you know, they're so they're so poor they wipe with pine cones. I mean, it's right. just horrible. But they, you know, the fam, the love, and you know, that they have for each other, and keeps them all together, and kind of keeps them uh, going. And so it was a really great lesson as far as that goes. Martin Ritt directed it, and right. you know, she was so funny. She had this great story about it was a the world premiere restoration really was at the uh, was the time i saw it It was uh you know um it was great to see that but she said that um she wasn't allowed to go to movies when she was growing up she spent almost all of her time singing in church 
she said it, it was so weird that you know it, she really became an actress kind of not in middle age but like as a young person but she she was in, never in school plays or anything else she, she she said she first entered a theater as a grown woman uh, for for the Red Cross they were asking for contributions and she went to a into a theater that was performing Arthur Miller's The Crucible, and she said she was just dumbstruck by it. She just she knew what she wanted to do the rest of her life. She said uh, when she walked into that theater as a young person, and and she didn't go in as a theater goer or as a theater patron or as a theater fan. She had huh. never been in a theater. She was there to you know cage contributions for the Red Cross, and it was a it was an absolute transformative moment for her, which I thought was really neat. Oh, that and, is cool. um, and this is a woman that's a three-time Oscar nominee, a Kennedy Center honoree, right. and got the Medal of Freedom from uh, Obama. So, I mean, she's pretty cool. Right. But she said, she said about that film, um, she said she, she went out for it, but they wanted her to play the role of the teacher. There's this very small role kind of at the end of the film uh -huh. where there's a teacher and her son who's trying to get to, <clears throat> excuse me, where Paul Winfield is. He's in a work camp. Right. He's trying to visit him. He, um, he basically come, goes by this school and this woman sort of takes him in for like a couple of nights and sort of, you know, gives him food and, you know, whatever on his journey, this epic journey to see his dad. Right. And then, and the, and the little kid, I think Kevin Hooks might have played him. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I think but I think that's right. He, he was, yeah, he was, you know, and he's uh, loves learning, and he's, you know, he's, he just loves that. But the, the, there's this, and it's a very empathetic, great role, the teacher role. And she originally had sort of read for that, but she said, no, I want to play the mom. And the mom is a huge role. And, yeah. and she said, you know, that's the role I want, and that's the role I'm going to get. <laughs> and so, you know, she, she said she just, spent all this time they came to her and they offered her the teacher role and she said no i want the mom role but they said well you didn't even you know read for the mom role how can we give it to you she said i'd be perfect for the mom role i'm not going to take the teacher role and then she didn't hear from them for like months she thought well maybe i blew it or whatever but yeah. i'm not going to take that teacher role <laughs> and then like two months later i think martin ritt calls her up well you have you have the mom yeah, on right. the costume. She said, and then everyone's laughing. And, and then um, uh, Ben Magwitz asked her, well, what did you think about that? She said, well, I knew it all along. Right. I was going to get that mom role. I was just, that was it. That's the thing I'm going to get. It doesn't matter. So talk about power of positive thinking. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, she definitely has a very maternal feel to her. At least that's the way I always feel about her yeah. in most of her roles. Yeah. It's just that kind of, I don't know, she just... It, you know, exudes that at least, at least, at least to me in my seat yeah. um, in the theater. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, she was just wonderful, and she's always been just wonderful in almost everything she's done. And and I mean, talk about hip. I mean, she was married to Miles Davis for years. So yeah, how he, can you? If you're married to Miles Davis and you can't, yeah, and you're not hip, there's just no, there's no. You know, for you. Yeah, I was watching, uh, you know, just as a side note, I, I saw the, uh, I, I, I can't even remember the title of it, but that film that Don Cheadle did on, on, um, oh, on Miles right. Davis was, was kind of on in the background last night when I was doing some things, and I was just like, wow, he was wired out on cocaine at the time, geez. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he was a yeah, heroin addict way back when every jazz guy was a heroin addict right. back in the 50s, exactly. I mean, it was almost a rite of passage, it's a... he, uh, yeah, he... That he survived it all and came through it, but you know. Yeah, Cicely Tyson, you know for sure, definitely an icon. But so you go from, 
you know, the South where they also kind of, you know, I'd seen other people describe Sounder as like a grapes of wrath um, in the South. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a good description. You know, maybe yeah. without the little political overtones so much, um, you know, because the grapes right. of wrath really has that kind of union socialist kind of feel to the, you know, to it. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, I'm trying to segue over to your next, uh, you know, the next topic we were going to talk about was um, uh, Romeo and Juliet, the 40th anniversary. Michael York, Olivia Hussey was there. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, and that, you yeah. know, was uh, Franco Zeffirelli too, directed that Romeo one. Romeo and Juliet and Tybalt. Oh, uh, wow. All in attendance. So, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was great. It, 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 it That was really fun because I remember that was also another it was sort of like the school theme for me because I mean, Founder <laughs> right. I went to as a as a grade schooler, and then Romeo and Juliet, we we went a class trip right. in uh, right. I think it was junior high. So I mean, it, it, you know, it was great to see you know the cast and to see and to see the film again. I mean, it really is a beautiful film. It's it's probably it to my mind possibly the best adaptation of any Shakespeare play mm, yeah. ever done on film. I mean, it's just, the music is gorgeous. Franco Zeffirelli's direction sure. is great. The cast is wonderful. Costumes and, and location. Uh, you know, the you costumes know, was, and locations yeah, were just, just top It was notch. fantastic. The problem was, is that it was on, it, it, they screened it at 9 p.m. And I thought this was going to be one of the, kind of the earmark movies, you know, there's three or four of them. Right. Um, we'll maybe talk about Animal House at the end, and, and, you know, which I thought, okay, this is, and Bullet, which we're going to get just gigantic crowds. And I think the problem was is that it was on at nine, and it's such a long movie. I mean, that was a long movie in 1968. And, uh, you know, when it, you know, nine o'clock, people are getting out at 11, 11 to 12 midnight. Right, and right. it was, I think that was the reason why it wasn't as jam-packed uh, as well attended as some of the other movies that I saw. I mean, that's my only thought because I mean, the you know you got you got Michael York and you got uh, Leonard Whiting and uh, Olivia Hussey showing up, and I thought, geez, you know. Yeah. So it wasn't a packed house for that one. No, it wasn't packed, and which I mean, you know, if you're attending, I guess that's good. Okay. Right? I mean, you're not packed in like sardines so that was sort of fun i think but i mean good for the attendees i sort of felt a little bad for you know uh the panelists thinking right. that you know i mean they're going to all this trouble to come here i mean it, it wasn't embarrassingly sure sure uh you know uh scant with audience members but you know i just thought there could have been a little more but um so did they throw I mean, in any big nuggets from the filming or or you yeah, know, the reaction? yeah there were a few the um Leonard Whiting is, you know, he played Romeo in it, and uh-huh. he's, he, he's like a really funny guy. I mean, you, you don't quite know that. Right. He's not like, he hasn't been in a lot of movies. I don't even think he acts anymore, but he's pretty funny. And he he said that it was a scary audition process. There were 600 people initially that vied for the role of Romeo. Then it was whittled down to 400, then finally just six. And... um you know, and then uh, he said, you know, he said, but I'm telling you, the, the film chemistry said between Olivia and myself was amazing. He, he said it was kinetic, almost instantaneous. He says, uh, you know, the first time he ever saw Olivia, if you can't make it work with her, then it's hopeless because, I mean, right. she was just gorgeous. You uh-huh. know? And I think she was like 15 or something right. at that time. Yeah, there was a and, little bit um, of a, 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 you know, controversy, I think, over some of her. 
um, scenes uh, because of yeah, the yeah, yeah, with the push-up rosier and you know, right. was, uh, you know, well endowed for a fifteen-year-old, and Zeffirelli <laughs> was shown as much as he could show, and uh, you know, but but Olivia was, and who, uh, Olivia lives really near me in Sherman Oaks, which is kind of funny. I've seen her once or twice uh, uh-huh. at uh, the local coffee house, but. So, um, and she just looked fantastic. She, uh, I mean, my God, she just looked great. She was radiant. And, um, you know, she said that uh, Zeffirelli was wonderful. She loved him. She had like a crush on him as a director, she said. And, and he was great, she said, because he made you feel totally immersed in what you were doing. He's able to, which she said was sort of tough. I mean, Shakespeare isn't easy. I mean, it's tough to have a director you know, work that magic on any film that you might be in as an actor. But as for Shakespeare, it was really tough. And and she said it was um, it was great. It was a, a wonderful learning experience. And she said, and and Zeffirelli was to able able to impart that once you learn Shakespeare, no one can touch it. Uh, you know, it, it it's just great. You you have it in your head. And uh, she said. Bad writing is really hard to learn, she said, but good writing is easy to learn, which I thought was interesting. It was an interesting insight. Like a, a really bad script, for whatever reason, she says, is very hard to get down. But a great script, and she says Shakespeare is the best there is, Right. you know, is very simple. At least it was for her. So I thought that was very cool. Well, that is and, cool. Um, hey, you know, I, I, I was kind of looking up some things, and, you know, we had talked about um, – uh, Leonard Whiting, and I guess in t- in 2015 he did a movie with Olivia Hussey. It was his first movie in you know 30 something years, and it was kind of okay. based supposedly on Romeo and Juliet. Um, they played parents, um, and and so uh, you know talking about it, the internet and how people are getting famous. But just a little side note there, I just thought it was kind of interesting. No, it's called very, Social yeah, that's Suicide. Very cool. You could tell they were very close. You know, I mean that they that they're pals kind of, and that they've kept up. And, uh, you know, but he said, you know, quite a contrast from what Olivia was saying about uh, her role as Juliet. Leonard uh, said that, you know, he he had this Cockney accent. He's British, and he was like, had this weird accent. And he, and he said that Zeffirelli at one point said, I mean, how's he going to learn? How's he going to learn to speak Shakespearean English when he can't even speak regular English? He was like, oh, "Crap!" I thought that was sort of funny, and uh, yeah, it was. I mean, uh, and then uh, Michael York said, uh, you know, he loved it. He was uh, he, he and he was he was great. But that was sort of part of the tragedy. He said, or I I thought was that he's suffering from this uh, ambiodosis. I think if I didn't mispronounce that, which is a kind of a, uh, a disease, a protein disease, and it really, right. really puts you through the mill. I mean, you look, you almost look like an end-stage cancer patient. It was just horrible. He's, you know, he was almost unrecognizable. He had, like, huge Swifty Lazar glasses and splotches on his face and hardly any hair. And But, you know, the minute he opened his mouth, he was he Michael was York. Right. You could tell that great voice of his. So and he was completely with it and all that, but he—it's just this sort of debilitating amyloidosis, I think it's called, uh, disease. So I, you know, I don't know how he's going to fare with that, but I felt, you know, it, it just was sad because he had to kind of be helped on the stage, the first one, to be kind of brought down from the wings and, and onto the stage so he right. could sit there, and then they had to adjust the lights a little bit because I guess part of this disease is, 
you know, light sensitivity. That, uh, it creates some sort of a problem with, uh, you know, with vision. But he, you know, and it's a far cry from Tybalt when he was, you know, jumping up and down and, uh, you know, right. uh, getting skewered by McCurtain or Cuscio. Yeah, right. so, uh, yeah. It, yeah, it was, uh, but it was very cool. It was great to see it. And, and the movie really does, you know, hold up. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, it's just a really wonderful movie. And, and it was, uh, it was really fun to see it that night with, uh, with all three of them there. And and they were, and they both, they all three of them said that they were, they felt really honored to be in that. And it was just a wonderful experience in their lives to be in that movie. And they, you know, uh, you know, uh, York was a little older. So, you know, he, kind of approached the role and, and, you know, a little differently, but he, they all just loved it and they loved Zeffirelli and, and it was just a great time in their lives. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, maybe the attendance you know, off the top of my head, you know, they've made so many um, remakes, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah, people, you know, right. people might think they know it, but as, as, you know, somebody who's seen them all, there really is, I mean, that's as close to Shakespeare, like you said, that you can get. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. you would thought that that and Bullet, um, which is the next thing we we're going to talk about, we're going to be the most attended. Um, was Bullet um, a little bit more well attended than the Romeo oh, and Juliet? It was. It was hugely attended, and here's the sad thing: it was. It was. It was attended. It was sold out, and it was in the main IMAX, you know, main Grauman's Chinese Theater that everyone knows. Right. About, you know, the big one that has been turned into an IMAX theater, so it had this fantastic screen. And um, Jacqueline Bissett was supposed to be there, and uh, you know who plays uh, Steve McQueen's girlfriend, love interest in the movie. Right. And Eddie Muller, the czar of noir, he's the 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 third thing I, noir alley guy that come that came out and said, I have good news and bad news. One <laughs> that you know we have this pristine, great IMAX print of the movie, and blah blah blah, but. Jacqueline Bissett had a family emergency and she can't make it. So yeah. people were just kind of, you know, I mean, people were there to see the movie. It wasn't that big a deal or right. a riot or anything, but it was kind of disappointing because, you know, I mean, uh, and, and it was one of these later films, Bullet. I mean, it's it's not, you know, the Roaring Twenties with Cagney, you know, so, yeah. you know, we were, people were hoping to see her, but, you know, it, she had an emergency and that's just the way, uh, you know, the way it goes sometimes. And Mueller tried to, you know, make uh, lemonade out of lemons or whatever with, with okay. as much as he could. And he, he said that, <laughs> I, he had a good line. He said, Steve McQueen makes corduroy look cool. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, that is true. And I'll tell you one thing. I had never seen Bullet in on an IMAX screen or even on a big, big screen. I think I don't think I ever saw it in a theater. I right. saw it on TV. And during that epic car chase, yeah. you know, in his Mustang, it, I mean, it was like you're on a cruise ship going through a typhoon. I mean, people wow. were reaching for their, you know, their <laughs> popcorn bags almost to wreck because, I mean, you, you know, the camera goes up and down and, I mean, and you're almost enveloped with the screen. So, I mean, really, oh, yeah. it was crazy. I, I had never seen that movie like that. I mean, and, and it was, it was amazing. People were coming out of the theater. They were just saying, oh man, it was, it was so cool to see one of the three greatest car chase scenes, maybe with um, the French connection and one or two others. Right. To see it on a big screen like that, where you're basically, you're, 
you're going up and down. It's like a you know a ride at Universal. Or yeah. Something. So you know that was very cool. That was unique for me, and I think people really kind of love that. So. so so they didn't have anybody else um, to that that was supposed to appear with Jacqueline Bissett then. So no, she didn't come. No. It was... In fact, I you know I'm thinking that maybe you know it's Mankiewicz and uh, Eddie Moore. I think he, according to Moore, it said. They were drawing lots, flipping coins, you know, doing whatever to see who would be able, who would get to interview Jacqueline Bissett. I think they both wanted to do it. Uh-huh. And and then when she bowed out, Mueller just went on. I don't know if he lost the coin toss for that. Like, right. well, you got to go on and, you know, <laughs> and tell everyone she's not here. So he, and he was very cool. And people love him. I mean, you know, they do love the hosts. That's the thing about... Uh, these film festivals, the film festival, you know, the attendees really, really, for the most part, like all the people that they see, you know, weekly on the various, you know, telecasts, uh, you know, the TCM, the movie intros or whoever. So they feel almost like they're you know, next door neighbors or something. So he got a big, he was probably the perfect guy to come out and give the bad news. So, and he said that I'm going to make, I'm going to make a pledge to you right now as we speak that, She's going to come back. She's going to come back for something. I pledge this on my honor. I'm not, I'm not going to stop until I get her back here for next year for something. You know, right. something. Some people are laughing. And, you know, we'll see if that happens next year. <clears throat> you know, I don't know. God knows. Maybe The Deep. Oh, yeah. The, the Deep. Or, yeah, The know, Deep is a great those, movie. You know. um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, it's another one. I mean, if you look at Bullet, um, you know, it was uh, Steve McQueen, who who obviously has passed, and, even Robert Vaughn is no longer around. Uh, uh, you know, Jacqueline Bissett is still around. Uh, but yeah, I even, think maybe Simon Oakland is still around. The, I don't know for sure. I, I'm not positive on that. He, right. He was McQueen's captain or whatever. In it. Right, right, right. And, you know, in uh, you know that small part that Robert Duvall has, I don't think he. Right. You know, right. Um, he, you know, he probably isn't necessary. Um, but, but, but you're yeah. right that 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 scene of of uh, of of uh, McQueen in the '68 Ford Mustang. Mustang GT, and then, um, you know, the Hitman in that 68 Dodge Charger oh, RT, great. you know, just, yeah. you know, nowadays they, they try to, they've actually tried to remake those cars, which is, 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 shows you, I think, not, you know, it's the time, but it's also the film. I don't think that, that yeah. Mustang GT would be so iconic, and even the Charger RT is, is just as iconic, you know, yeah. and they, they've now remade those two things. You can't have a, a you know, a, a Charger RT and a Ford Mustang GT that they try to make look like those two things. You, you know, exactly. like you said, you'll never the, forget it. And the latest, it. I don't know if you read about this, this happened a couple of months ago. They found right, right. that car down like in Mexico somewhere. Uh-huh. The, right. one of the, it's probably one of the two or three cars that they tricked out to use, you know, McQueen's car, Mustang. But they found, they traced it some some guy traced it down to some I don't know, an impound lot or maybe someone some guy owns it down there and didn't even know he had it. Right. You know, and I think then someone tried to bid on it, but then this guy said, Oh, I probably went on the internet, Googled and said, Oh, I could make some. Yeah, I should keep this. I should <laughs> Right, right. Now but beyond you know, we you know, we talked about the car chase and you have to, and everybody knows Bullet is oh, that car chase or the Mustang. But that's also a pretty good film, um, yeah, you know. Just yeah. you know, what, you know what he's going through, being you know, well, you know, worried about who's you know giving who away. You know, it's mm-hmm. got that whole syndicate, you know, thing, the whole mob mm-hmm. thing, the hitmen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a really good film, strongest plot almost in any of McQueen's films. Would you? Would you yeah, say? Yeah, you know? it it really is, and to me, 
you know, when you watch it, it really kind of underscores his cool aspect. I mean, because he doesn't say a lot. He just, you know, he's a kind of a man of action. Like, he doesn't like Vaughn. Vaughn, right, 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 right. off the bat, is oily. He's one of these guys that... Oily. <laughs> yeah, that he's just trying to, you know, he's trying to make political points, and he's ambitious. He's this ambitious DA that wants to nail the organization or whatever they call right, it. Right, right. Uh, you know, and, and, and McQueen is, you know, he, he he's a protective of his men, and he just wants to do right. He wants justice, so... And he doesn't make a big deal out of it. He just goes his own way, as he says to, I think, Vaughn in one of the scenes. He says, you know, I don't like you, but why don't you work your side of the street and I'll work mine? You know, I mean, basically, he just tells him to go, you know, have himself. Right. I mean, it was great. I mean, he's just, and, and, you know, and then the car chase and this and that. And, I mean, you know, the guy is just, he makes corduroy look cool, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um. Going from corduroy looking cool to you know uh, tucks and tails or um, some you know some dancing silk stockings is one of those films. Another uh, Fred Astaire, Sid Charisse, I believe, right? Am I? Yeah, you're right. You're uh, right. It was, uh, and I'm I'm a big musical fan, so oh, this yeah. was kind of a fun one for me to go to. And, and Sid Charisse, and, uh, how could you not? I mean, that film too is oh, like, is almost the epitome yeah. of her sex appeal in Hollywood and oh, dancing. You're right. You you're absolutely right about that. And. And, you know, the funny thing about that, John, is that it's, uh, it's 1957, it was MGM, it was old, and it was really Fred Astaire's last musical before, you know, 12 years later he right. made Finian's Rainbow, which was, you know, he was kind of elderly then, he wasn't sure. jumping up and down. So, I mean, this was really his last, fa- you know, big MGM bona fide legitimate musical, and and it was, you know, it's based on, uh, you know, it's it's based on Ninochka, the movie with Greta Garbo, and and it was, it's a perfect role for Sid Charisse. It's really Sid Charisse's movie more than Fred's. It's uh, it's a real great starring vehicle for her. And and she once told me in an interview, she said that, you know, she was given a choice by Arthur Freed, the famous producer of, of musicals. She said she was she was up for a role in in. Silk Stockings, as the Nanachka character opposite Fred Astaire, or she could take a role in Lake Girls, which was the same year Gene Kelly uh, made a musical called Lake Girls, but she would have been one of three sort of girlfriends of Gene's in that movie, and Silk Stockings was a starring role opposite Fred, so she took, you know, she did what was best for she took the better role, right? And she said she never regretted it. I mean, she loved Gene and would have done that movie, but she said it was just a way better role, and uh, you know, and so there was really no choice to be made. She took it, and and that was another film that was uh, surprisingly sold out. I mean, there were just a lot of people that were at that movie, and they no, the introduction what they didn't really they had some uh, a woman sort of a, a woman historian or I don't even, I, you know, I don't really quite know what she was. I mean, she, she was introduced by one of these little factotums from, uh, it was either a TCM, uh, woman or someone from the PR agency. I don't know, but this right. was probably the weakest panel Q and a thing because uh-huh. I mean this, uh, the, the, the little, the factotum woman just didn't know anything. You could tell she had never seen Probably a Fred Astaire film, and you know, and they were mispronouncing the names of the. I think they called Vincent Minnelli Vincente Minnelli, and you know, and and Nanachka, they could never get that right, you know. So it, that that tends to kind of 
you know, underwhelm you, or, you know, it tends to kind of like uh, sabotage what you're trying to impart as far as knowledge if you can't get the names of the characters right or whatever. But Yeah, and it's not so, like you're just doing it at a, at a regular, you know, Cineplex. You know, this is the TCM Festival where you have, you know, classic film lovers here, right? You know? Yeah, you should really be up on your stuff. Right, I mean, right. You know, you, I mean, it's not, it, it's not rocket science. It's like, here's a movie, and okay, I have a few questions, but I mean... You know, if you got to go to a vocal coach to get the, uh, you know, the names right, do it or something. Yeah. But I mean, you know, but that, I mean, that, and that normally doesn't happen there. I mean, usually they're all, and it's and like with Mankiewicz and, and others, they're really practiced, you know, and they're great. They know their stuff. They're just right. really smooth. But this was one that I think fell through the cracks. So the, the little prologue discussion was really kind of, you know, it was like, okay, well, whatever. But but the film was great, and um, and the audience loved it. So was that your first chance to see uh, Silk Stockings on a on a big screen, or had you seen that's that? That's a good question. No, I have seen that before, years and years ago. Uh, back when I lived in Minnesota, I grew up there, and I saw it at a, a, a couple of screenings at some some old rep houses that used to screen. You know, yeah. Million years ago, when you know certain movie theaters would screen old time movies, and so I think I saw it there. And I, yeah, it was just it was very very fun to see. So well, you you know you talked about that that panel wasn't very good, but it seems like from you know the little bit of discussion we had before the podcast that the closing night film and the panel of Animal House um, was was one of the best ones, um, at least yeah, for as far as yeah. being entertaining. But you know if you have you know, Otter there, I mean, we're giving their character names, Otter, Niedermeyer, Hoover, Babs, the guy who gets his guitar smashed by Belushi, and and director John Landis, that must have been fun. Yeah, that was absolutely fantastic. I mean, it was so great. They, they I knew that. I mean, I knew this whole, and because there were other films that were, you know, scheduled around the same time. You could choose to go to other films, but I knew right. that Animal House was going to be like standing room only. <laughs> so with that kind of a lineup, and um, and it was, and they all trooped on, and it was really funny. They're all coming out with their little water bottles, and then and then Mankiewicz says, and uh, and Mark Metcalf as Niedermeyer, right. and so he comes on, and people are booing. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's very funny, and there's not a chair for him. There's like eight. Eight little director's chairs set up on stage, and I guess they miscounted, and there wasn't one for Niedermar, and he says, that's okay, I'll just lie on the floor where I belong, or whatever, and it was just, I mean, it was people were laughing. The only person that knew what this thing was going to become, how popular and how seismic for comedy and changing the face of film comedy, because then Caddyshack came after that, and the comedies were in that mode for years, the only person that knew was um, John Vernon who played Dean Wormer, he said that after like two or three days, he said, he called Landis aside and said, you "You know, you got, you got like, you got something epic here. And he said, no, it's just some stupid comedy. He said, I don't even know, you know, half of this stuff is going to make the final cut because it's so offensive. He said, no, you don't understand. This is hilarious. This is, this is going to be huge. Dean Wormer, the only guy that That's knew, right. and the entire cast, and the rest of the cast said the same. They said <clears throat> that was true. They all they all had a great time doing it, but they just didn't they didn't know what they had. You yeah, know, they just uh, you know. And then when it came out and started breaking box office records and led to poker parties on campus, and they couldn't believe it. And um, you know, but but they said that the whole. You know, Otter. Otter was going to be. He wasn't. Uh, he he was 
not Tim Matheson wasn't originally cast in that role. They wanted they were going to go for Chevy Chase. Oh, really? And uh, you know, they, but but then Landis said, yeah, well, we got Belushi, and they were trying to get Aykroyd for some other role, and right. they didn't get they didn't get him. But they didn't. And then Landis said, I, I didn't really want Chevy Chase because it would be too much of like an SNL movie. Uh-huh. So, but they went to Chevy Chase, and Landis tried to talk him out of it. He, he kind of said, well. Chevy, I mean, I see that you uh, you've been offered foul play with Gold, Goldie Hawn, right. and you know that's a romantic comedy, and you're going to be sharing the screen with her. But you know, in Animal House, you'll just be one of many cast members, and you know, and so he's totally kind of downplaying yeah. it. And Chevy sort of took the bait, Landis said, and you know, made foul play, which was a huge hit for him, right. but <clears throat> but did not get into you know, did not uh, become a cast member, which was great. That Landis said it would have not been good for the movie, and and. And then Tim Matheson, you know, from his chair, was like, "Thank you, Chevy." Yeah. He's like yelling out from the chair. Yeah, that made so. that you know that definitely made Tim Matheson's career. It seems like, but, yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, you yeah. know, when you know, you talk about John Vernon, and he was the you know the prototypical you know hard ass straight man. Um, you know how he was able to keep it going that whole time. I mean, I'd love to see outtakes of that, but you know, he yeah. also must have seen some of the talent that was in this film because, as you mentioned, with. You know, there was Caddyshack and some others, and it became a a pattern um, movie, which was kind of the way that '80s kind of you know gross out sexual comedies, whatever right. you had, kind of kind of kind of took over. But you didn't have many other films like that with that kind of acting talent. Like you talk about, you know, Tom Hulse, um, who would yeah. go on to win, uh, right? I think he won for Amadeus, right? Yeah, um, he did, and Peter Riegert. Karen Allen, right, right. And I mean, it was just a, it was a really good cast, and and you're right about that. I mean, a lot of them, and you know, ironically, Bacon. then Chevy Chase was in National Lampoon's Vacation later right, on. Right, I mean, right. You know, you know, but but it, it just everything sort of gelled, and they said that you know, Landis said that he brought the cast up to Oregon, and that he would kind of keep the Animal House guys away right, from right. you know the Niedermeyer guys, right, like right. that he. he tried to create even dissension after shooting was done. Like they weren't, they were all billeted on one room of some like holiday right, right, on right. one floor and, and they'd have parties, the animal house guys that were just like raucous. And like Niedermeyer said, well, I, I kind of never, I was never invited and I never felt I'd be welcome right. to go down, you know, so, and, and be at these parties. And then, you know, Matheson was telling this great story of, uh, and the, um, the songwriter who, you know, the guy that gets the guitar smashed, I forget his name, but he was also wrote the song and sang the song. You know, the he wrote the 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 Animal House song and then the the um credit song where, you know, Dean Wherever uh, tried to shut us down in that falsetto. Right, right. You know, in that Frankie Valley thing. So he he did all that, but they they uh, they went to some fraternity party on campus. I think it was the Oregon Mighty Ducks or something up in that way, uh-huh. in, near Eugene or something. They they gate-crashed, they said, a fraternity party. And they, they the cast was just a few years older than some of these right. you know, fraternity guys, but they, they gate-crashed one because they had nothing to do one night, so they all went. So it became a real animal house, but they gate-crashed a fraternity that was like an athletic fraternity. Uh-huh. And these guys all had girlfriends there, and, and they were they, these guys were kind of paranoid about the Hollywood guys coming in and stealing their women. Right, right. So they basically beat the shit out of the <laughs> They were throwing them out the door, 
you know, out onto the, you know, they were just like pummeling them, and then the, the the animal house guys ended up just sort of running like, and then they had all this makeup that they needed to do, you know, like black eyes and stuff the next day. For you know, I mean, I, I think you know uh, the uh, um, otter after he gets beaten up by uh, Niedermeyer and, and right. the rest of them. That I don't think real? there was much makeup for him on that. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of those bruises were from these fraternity guys where they tried to gate crash their party one night. <laughs> yeah, you also had like uh, Bruce McGill too, who was D Day. Yeah. You know, and he's yeah, gone on D-Day. to do uh, yeah. hundreds yeah. of different things, and nothing like D Day. Um, even Kevin Bacon, right? I mean, we can't forget. Yeah. Please, sir, may yeah. I have another? Or thank you, sir, may I have another? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of really iconic moments in that in that in that movie. Um, you know, one of the favorite lines is, "Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor?" Hell no! You yeah. know, that's one of yeah. Germans. Uh, forget it. He's rolling. You know? <laughs> right, like, right. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, it's you know, and I don't know how much of those were ad libbed. I pro- I don't know if a lot of it, if a lot of them were, but they. They all, you know, they, uh, Landis also mentioned that, you know, Stork, the guy that plays Stork, right. was Douglas Kenny. He was the screenwriter. Right, like, right, Doug Kenny. The original Harvard Lampoon or one of the Lampoon editors in college. I mean, this all stemmed from basically the insane college experience that that Douglas Kenny had. And Kenny played that role of Stork, like where we, you know, we thought you were brain damaged the first two years. And then he has that classic line, what do you think I, what, what are you, a moron? Right, right. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, and Kenny had a sort of a tragic end years later. He committed right. suicide in uh, in Hawaii, I think. But he had kind of a tragic arc there. But, sure. but um, yeah, Landis, uh, you know, I mean, he, Landis could have talked for hours. I mean, he just loved it. And, and the cast, you know, you know, just I mean, it, to the, to this day, they are real close. All of them said that they're very, very close to each other, and which they say, you know, just doesn't happen in movies. I mean, that you know, that kind of fraternal camaraderie or whatever that go, you know. I, I mean, they all meet for some of these, you know, get-togethers or whatever, and it's just they pick up like it's a reunion. They just love it. So, Hopefully, they're not picking you know. up the cocaine like they did back in that. You know. Oh jeez, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, you yeah. see, yeah. you know, about what Doug Kenny was really... a real coke movie. I. <laughs> I, from what I've read, I, I don't know so much about Animal House. I think they were just drinking to major <laughs> excess, I mean, all the time. But, you know, it, oh it's goodness. a great one. It's the 70s. You know, at least people were awake instead of passing out, like, with opioid that we have nowadays. Yeah, so no, least... exactly. I mean, they just, they wake up with a blistering hangover, but, you know, get to the set and do their thing. Yeah, at least so. people had their their homes clean back in the day. Anyway, um... <laughs> <laughs> We go from that, um, you know, kind of, kind of wrapped up your, your, sure. you, you know, your, um, uh, the, yeah, the events that you went and see. Um, there was also some closing night parties. Did you do any of that um, besides yeah, just? Yeah, I did. After the Animal House, you know, film, I, I kind of went back to the Roosevelt where the Club TCM thing was, and yeah, I, it was that basically the closing night party is just, it's, it's. For some reason, even more than the opening night party, it is just jammed with people. It's like, I guess everyone's last chance to kind of hang out and, and you know, say goodbye or whatever to whoever. So I kind of, you know, I trapped my way in and, uh, you know, there was no hope of me getting a beer. So, I mean, I couldn't even get close to the bar. So I, I just kind of, you know, toddled home after that. But it was, uh, you know, I saw a few people that I see every year there, which were, you know, was kind of cool and, and, uh, 
you know, and that was that. But I mean, you know, the closing night party was anticlimactic after Animal House. I mean, that yeah, was okay. just like, oh my god, you know. I mean, it was just give me a so, so give me a fraternity house to uh, crash the party, then maybe right. That, that. Oh man, that would have been <laughs> oh that would have been classic. Or to get some of these athletes find them these frat boys that they that you know they got beaten up by to have them come down the aisles you know they'd all be middle aged now and you know come on remember me you know oh, man, that was a classic but uh, uh. Yeah, well, I think it was Medlin College or something like that, or or. Yeah, I, I can't remember. They they did mention it's up in Oregon somewhere, but yeah, and. Uh, and it was Farber though in the film, right? It was Farber town, but it was Farber, yep. uh, right? Wasn't that wasn't that the name of the university in the? F- yeah, Faber College. Faber, there you go, Faber. Yeah, yeah, classic. Um, but yeah, that was Atlanta said that he just you know he couldn't believe that a lot of this stuff kind of pass muster with, you know, not, you know, not even, not, not I'm not even saying the critics, but like that it, it, it didn't end up on the cutting room floor. Cause he said it just offended everyone. But then he said, that's probably why it be, it became so good and why it was sort of given a green light is because it offended everyone. So it was like Don Rickles. I mean, <laughs> you know, if he's, if he's ripping everyone in sight, then no one can be offended that's because right. everyone's ripped. You know, so you know, yeah, I don't know. He yeah. just he said it was, you know. But Vernon was the only one. Vernon was the only one that knew from knew like was three going. days in that this thing was going to be a mega hit. Well, you're going to kill a horse in my office, right? Or, or uh, you know, it's got to. That's got to be funny. Even just the freezing of the horse when he supposedly has the heart attack was hilarious. Oh yeah, no classic. <laughs> and Vernon, and and you know, Landis was saying too that Vernon was really excited about doing it because he's like, as you said, he's the heavy right. in like, you know, Outlaw Josie Wales and almost right, every right. movie and, and a lot of uh, that old 70s TV was always some murder or whatever. And so the chance to play, you know, kind of this, you know, you know, asshole. Right, but he gets laughed at. Yet, right. yet you know, was like facing off against Cesar Danova, you right. know, the, the mafia, you know, guy that owns the dealership. I mean, and, you know, getting strangled by him and the whole thing. He said it was just, he loved it. He was so happy to do a role that had laughs that, that you know, he leapt at that role. And, you know, and there was no going back. Oh, so. oh yeah, for sure. Um, uh, general impressions on the festival this year. Like you said, I think you, this this was the fifth one that you attended. It's the ninth one that they've held. Um, you've kind of, yeah. you know, you've been there more often than you haven't since they've done it. Um <laughs> You know, how has it evolved? What's, you know, what's changed? How did you, you know, what was your general feel on, on, on the whole, on, on, on the entire festival? Sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I've been covering it five years for Modern Times, and it's been great. And, um, you know, it's, it's evolved. They had, as Mankiewicz said on opening night, he said it's, there's about 100 and, I think, 130 or 140 events that, that I might have said this already, that, that occurred that, you know, films and or lectures and or special events. So it's a new record for them. They, they've been, they've been scheduling more and more stuff, which is always good because it just, it gives people choice and, uh, and that's great. But, um, but, you know, my only, you know, pet peeve and, and this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a media guy, so I get kind of comped in with the little media pass, which isn't, you know, that doesn't allow me to go to everything, not the red carpet events and, and other stuff is, is pretty unique or it's, it's pretty um, closed off to right. anyone but with the spotlight pass. Sure, That's sure. The, kind of the, 
Willy Wonka golden ticket. If you pony up about two grand, you get a, a spotlight pass, which is great. I mean, you get breakfasts, you get all kinds of special stuff. You, you know, which and it, you know, if you can afford it, that's the way to go. But you know, when you factor in, you know, the the spotlight pass, what it costs, the airfare, maybe if you're not an Angelino or a Californian and you're not driving, so you're coming from wherever, right. and then, you know, hotel and food and whatever, I mean, it's pretty hefty. So, <clears throat> you know, that's a, I, you know, I just can't help but think that might be kind of a problem going forward, because I don't think that pass is going to get cheaper. Mm. Now, they have <clears throat> other passes, they have the Essentials Pass and and some of these these other passes that a couple of friends of mine got where, you know, you're allowed into the pool party screenings and then maybe, you know, two or three films, you know, in some of the other theaters, but they don't let you into the club TCM, which is like where the Mickey Mouse thing happened and, and all that. And, you know, they're cheaper, which is good. So, you know, I, they give you a, a variety and a range, which is great, but, you know, it is not, it is not cheap. And, and as far as trends go, as we kind of spoke of, you know, well, Animal House, Bullet, right. you know, they're not vintage films. They had Kramer versus Kramer. They had Bull Durham with uh, Ron Shelton was speaking, you know, which was cool. I mean, that's all great, but they're not, you know, it's not, they're not Cagney, Bogart, Carol Lombard, you right. know, which, I, which they can't be, I suppose, anymore. You can't get people from... You know, there there just aren't a lot of people that a lot you know live from those films that could be you know talking heads. Anymore. Right. That's the problem. So, and you know the audience themselves. Uh, you know, they every year it's sort of like the World War II generation. More veterans die. I mean, more people that really saw these films first run in the 30s and 40s. They're gone. They just yeah. they're so. You know, there are, there are always a bunch of a, a critical cadre of nerds like me that will love these old movies. But, I mean, how many people are there out there that, you know, that, that are like me or like you, John, that love these old films? They, you know, they, I guess they got to start, they, they sort of have to kind of mine some of the later, you know, audience demographics. And uh, that's why I think they're coming up with some of these, you know, later films like, you know, Jacqueline Bissett could have spoke if she didn't have the... Right. family emergency. So I think what, what will happen more and more in the next few years, if this festival continues, which I assume it will, um, they'll just get more, you know, more yeah. like the producers. Again, uh, Bell Brooks was on hand in, in 91. Right. But the guy, I mean, he, he might as well be 15. I mean, the guy is just doesn't <laughs> sit down. He doesn't work from notes. He's insane and really fun. But, you know, the producers, too, is, you know, I don't know, it's not, I think it came out when I was in high school, so right. is it vintage? Well, not in the way that, you know, Silk Stockings is, or Singing in the Rain, but it'll be vintage to this new, you know, group of theater goers, kids in their 30s or 40s or 20s, you know, it'll be, you know, vintage at some point, so, you know, I think that's the way they're going, and uh, that's probably the way they kind of have to go, so. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an element of the passage of time, right? What what once was new is becomes a classic. Yeah, um, exactly. That's it, it in a nutshell. Um, right. You know, uh, there was you know the last thing I wanted to ask you about. And I know you sure. you know you know we talked about you know your past didn't you know necessarily get you into the Scorsese thing, but it was the one bit of controversy that seemed to come out of the festival this year was, um, the, you know the fact that he was kind of ripping on um, these. Uh, movie review sites, Rotten Tomatoes, those kinds of things. 
Right. Um, you know, was there any discussion at the festival beyond that or, you know, and, and you being, you know, you know, you've written books, you've written plenty of, 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 of reviews and interviews with all these famous folks. Um, right. you know, what's the general feel that you get from, from Hollywood? I mean, you know, you see some people and it's in their marketing now, Hey, great score on Rotten Tomatoes, but right. you know, what do they really feel about it? And, and, and how did that transcend to the event? You know, if you can kind of, kind of continue to what Scorsese's sure. remarks were. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, Scorsese is kind of cool that way where, where he, he's sort of old school. I mean, he's also a film historian. He loves, he knows more probably about film than almost anyone alive. And that's what a Coppola always said about him. But, right. um, you know, the problem is, and it's, it's really a journalism thing, John, that, that, that I'm sure you know all about uh-huh. being a, a journalist and a, you know, and a site guy that, you know, these, these, these aggregate, sites like Rotten Tomatoes where everyone can, you know, they, they aggregate out all these comments uh-huh. and then they come up with these, whatever these, these, these things are, these levels or these, you know, uh, you know, get Rankings. the four, get the two, it sucks, right. it's great, whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. It's all numbers crunching. It's all analytics. But what, what you're losing is really the authoritative voice of a really smart critic that you might like. Right. And, 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 you know, I mean, when I was growing up, there were people, there's Pauline Kale, there were, you know, Andrew Saris, there were people in the, you know, it, it very, even my local, you know, newspaper. I mean, if I liked them, I kind of followed them. If I liked their taste, then I would say, okay, well, he wrote this review or she did about this thing, and I respect them, so I'm going to read the review and see if I want to go. But the problem is, is that, you know, you know, and I have a friend of mine, Mike Phillips, he, uh, He's the, the first string critic for the Chicago Tribune. He, you know, he has this conversation all the time with people. He just he wonders if he's the last of of an era of film critics at major newspapers that can hold a job down. Like yeah. that they they keep, you know, they. I mean, that profession because of these aggregate sites might cease to exist generally. I mean, there'll be a few like New York Times or you know L.A. Times. There'll be a few big papers right. that afford, you know, that, that employ critics, but a lot of these newspapers, they won't need them, you know, I mean, they just, why, why go to a, in the same way that a lot of these political cartoonists, I have a good friend up in, um, the, he writes for the, uh, he's a cartoonist for the Sacramento Bee, Jack Ullman, he won a Pulitzer this year for uh. political cartooning, but he had been a longtime cartoonist for the Oregonian in Portland, and they laid him off. Yeah, you know, like three years before he wins the Pulitzer. And I mean, he was—he's been famous. I mean, not famous, but as a political cartoonist, right. he's been a force for years. But even someone with the chops that he has, you know, his newspaper of record that he worked for for I think more than twenty years offloaded him because they just—they just can don't go do it they can get their cartoons from a an aggregate site or some syndicate that they just pay, and they don't have to pay him a salary and benefits. So. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think these aggregate sites, I mean, personally, I think they're kind of, I, I don't really want look at them that much. I don't care about them because, you know, I mean, well, yeah, you know, if I, if I really cared what they, what they thought, I'd go to every Avengers movie. Oh, because they all, everyone loves it. Well, yeah. I don't like, you know, yeah, me either. That, that's not my favorite kind of movie to see. I'd rather see something, you know, with maybe not cartoon superheroes in it once in a while. Yeah, me so, too. You know, the interesting part about, um, I think, the point that, that Scorsese was going to make, too, and I think the general 
uh, take that you were also making about having professionals who watch movies for a living, not just people right. who go and see them. Um, and right. also with editors who decide what news is important to put there, not just people who say, hey, you know, look at this or more right. people are looking at this, is that it allows you to have that that kind of growth and, and development of a, both of a news story and of a right. film. And and that was kind of the point that Scorsese was making, that some films are buried before they ever even yeah. have a chance to live in a theater long enough for yeah. an audience to find them. And how does the craft grow when all you're doing is basically looking at aggregate reports or marketing reports, and that sometimes exactly. the industry will yeah. grow out of that. Yeah, yeah. And you're not learning anything. I mean, a really good critic, like an, uh, like an erudite critic that's been around, that spent years basically honing his or her craft, you know, I mean, you can, I mean, that's, that's a real value added for anyone. Like if I'm reading a review and I'm reading, you know, uh, someone that I really admire that, that whose taste I like and whose intelligence I respect, you can learn a lot. You can learn a lot about film just generally, you know, about like through, you know, what they say. No, I'm not saying I agree or, you know, I mean, everyone has their own opinions. Everything's, you know, art is subjective. So that's great, you know, but it's, it's, it's nice to have people that, that really, the critics, you know, critics who really know their stuff so that you can kind of take that into the, you know, you, you can make that part of the conversation and see, you know, do I want to, you know, do I want to go to this or, oh, this sounds really interesting the way they describe that this is, this is what happens or whatever. So, but yeah, aggregate sites, if it's just all numbers, bean counting and numbers crunching, I mean, What's that going to tell you? You know, I don't know. Yeah, and, so. you know, they even had the um, whole controversy over The Last Jedi, and there was even some indication that it was just hacked or loaded so that people were ripping on the film on purpose um, using their computer right. skills to make sure that right. it had a low score. I mean, it's not even yeah. anything you can rely on, but again, you know... That's a really I, good point. You know, You're folks right. like us who love film, um, I, I definitely, when I see usually blockbusters, the first thing I think is, well, um, of course I'm not going to go see that, you know. And, and I'm, you know, I'm the kind of guy that doesn't really like to go to the movie theater anymore. One, you know, yeah, for a lot of different yeah. reasons, it costs way too much. I just can't see yeah. myself, you know, giving to billionaires anymore. Yeah, um, right. I can wait to see it right. on television in six months. But, you know, yeah. um, the, the real good films aren't being uh, distributed in theaters as far as I'm concerned. And if they are, yeah. they're too hard to see. You know, it's okay, yeah. you got to go at 10.30 or you got to go in the you know, afternoon matinee, and, you know, when I'm, I might be doing something else. But, you know, great conversation, right. Tom. You know, as always, I, you know, we could probably talk forever about film. And, and you know, especially when you go <laughs> to someplace cool, cool like the TCM Festival, which, again, I'm going to have to make it out there with you one of these years. Um, that would be very cool, John. That would be very, very cool. You know, plan a vacation and we'll just, we'll just hang out and maybe we'll do the breakfast somewhere, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a spotlight pass. We'll get a couple of media passes. That's the way to go. We'll just buy some Denny's gift certificates. And, uh, <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> anyway, Tom, thanks again. Um, uh, we'll see you in maybe in a month or so uh, with another yep. Hooray for Hollywood, and always look forward to it. Same here. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for the special edition of Hooray for Hollywood podcast. Next time, it'll just be Tom with his interview guest, and you won't have to be burdened by by John kind of putting his two cents in. But thanks again, everybody. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you, John. And you're never a burden, let me tell you. <laughs> thanks. See you next okay. time, everybody.